Welcome to our podcast series. This is John McDonnell. I've been undertaking a series of podcasts which is based upon struggle, a series around class struggle in Britain. And now we're looking at struggles that have taken place uh, across the globe, a sort of selection of some of the key issues whereby people have, through struggle, trying to secure their freedom and also materially change their living circumstances. I want to talk about the anti-colonial struggles, the development of empire by Western countries, Western powers from the 17th century onwards meant that whole sections of the globe, Africa, India, the East, were dominated by Western powers, largely for economic exploitation, often particularly for Africa based upon slavery. And it resulted in a global maldistribution of wealth in particular, as well as uh, brutal regimes being imposed upon large sections of the, of the planet. This morning, we want to talk about how people fought against that empire building that took place as a result of Western interventions. And we want to talk about the anti-colonial struggles that weren't just a struggle for freedom, but in many instances, we're looking at what sort of societies people wanted to create within their own home territories. The two people I've got talking this morning with me is Heidi Chow. She's the executive director of Debt Justice, formerly Jubilee Debt Campaign. Debt Justice campaigns to end unjust debt in solidarity with the affected communities in the global south and across the UK. Heidi's got a long track record of winning public campaigns on economic justice issues, was formerly a senior campaigns and policy manager at Global Justice Now, which many of you heard of. Also, Asad Rahman. Asad has worked in the non-governmental and charity sectors for over 25 years. His expertise puts him at the forefront of the climate justice movement in the UK and around the globe. Previously, he was the head of international climate at the major environmental NGO Friends of the Earth. Assad is now the executive director of War on Want, a movement committed towards ending poverty and injustice. And both of them have been involved in serious campaigning and demonstrated the effectiveness of campaigning, but based upon an analysis, a detailed analysis of the issues that they're confronting. I want to start off, Assad, I want to start off with you. We need to define somehow the anti-colonial movement, what it was and how it arose. Big challenge, I realise that. But if you can do that in two sentences, that would be wonderful. I'm joking. I mean, as you said, John, it's uh, it's difficult to sum up, you know, succinctly because we can talk about anti-colonialism as being centuries old, right? In terms of if we wanted to put it into a, like a, a much bigger historical context, we could talk about the doctrine of discovery in 1452, where you know, the European kings and queens with the blessing of the, of the Catholic Church, you know, set out, you could invade, search out, capture, vanquish and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and all of their movable and immovable goods wherever held and possessed by them and reduce their person to perpetual slavery and to convert them to his or their use and profit. And you could say, from that moment, there are, of course, resistance, and some would say that that's anti-colonial resistance. But most of us, I suppose, if we wanted to really just try and narrow down, we'd probably talk about anti-colonialism in the 20th and the 21st century. And anti-colonialism is, is really two concepts together. First, there's, of course, the historical 
element to it, the historical event, which is anti-colonialism was a struggle against the imperial rule in colonized countries. And, uh, and that was against empire, whether that was the British empire, the French empire, the Spanish empires, etc. And the second part, which was interconnected, was also a critical analysis because anti-colonialism was as much also about a political movement that analyzed the role of empire, but also the fight for what comes next. And so, you know, you had post-colonial nationalism, anti-colonial thinkers, and they talked about and debated, you know, ideas of like political solidarity, cooperation of the global South. It led to, you know, the non-aligned movement and Afro-Asian solidarity. And it's these two, and what you could say, theory and political practice, which has come to, uh, and this moment, when people talk about anti-colonialism, they try and talk about these two things really to connect together because it wasn't just simply the ending of empire. It was also an analysis of, you know, what came next for what we now call the global south. Heidi, come in on this as well. What do you define as anti-colonialism? I think um, Assad has given a quite good overview there that we see on a very basic level, this kind of um, struggle against colonial rule and domination but I also think that the anti-colonial movement didn't really stop at the point of independence. You know, actually, there's also a period post-independence where we see that colonial powers continue to maintain that colonial relationship of power, domination and subjugation, but through other means. And so instead of having, um, you know, actual boots on the ground and, and an actual kind of direct rule by foreign powers, we see other developments around, for example, um, coups, getting rid of leaders that... Um, the colonial powers didn't like um, after countries became independent and installing their own leaders that they liked that, that aligned with their kind of Cold War objectives. And then later on, we see the shaping of um, the global economy um, in a way that benefits largely the former colonial powers, um, the you know, rich countries um, and their corporate allies, and actually creating this form of empire that doesn't involve taking over direct ruling of countries, but still involves control and subjugation and domination through economic power. And so we often call this period neocolonialism. So the anti-colonial movement, I think, also incorporates um, this um, anti-neocolonialism period, where I believe, you know, for example, Assad and I are kind of very active in, that, in this space, where we continue to see the impacts um, of colonialism and neocolonialism right to the present day. And those are the sort of forces that we continue to fight. And um, we see that, so for example, on my issues, we, we campaign on debt, and debt was hugely weaponized in this kind of neo-colonial period to be used as a, a way to control economies in, and enforcing economies of former colonies in the global south um, to implement really extreme um, economic policies that ultimately benefited the former colonial powers at the expense of ordinary people living in global south countries. And Thomas Sankara, the, the, the president of Burkina Faso often talked about debt as neo-colonialism and talked about the multilateral institutions of the IMF and the World Bank as technical assassins that no longer were they kind of sending in actual people to kill and, and to um, uh, use uh, rifles to, to subjugate. They were now using technical, technical people from the IMF and World Bank to, to do their bidding. So I think that when we think about anti-colonialism, I think it is very broad, it's very wide, um, it stems um, centuries, regions, but also on, on different levels as well. We talk about economic um, dominance, but there's also uh, anti-colonialism movement around the culture and ideology as well. And we see a movement around decolonizing the mind, decolonizing our, our, you know, the way that colonialism has had a really big impact on the psychology and the ideology of people in former colonies. 
absolutely right, Heidi. I mean, you know, when, when we think about colonialism as a as an economic tool, absolutely. I mean, it was like we can say it was gunboats and and shackles, and that's how you both controlled resources, controlled physical territory, exploited both people and those countries for wealth accumulation and extraction of that profit. And the anti-colonial struggles weren't just simply about an historical effect of let's get rid of empire in, in terms of independence. This analysis of understanding the systems that had been put in place and resisting those, and uh, you no longer needed to literally have a, a military presence in a country because you could control it through your trade route policies. You could control it through debt subjugation. You could control it through you know, the power of your corporations. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, anti-colonial struggles then became anti-imperialist movements because they were, they were still talking about this extension of power of the global north through economic and political tools and the dominance that they had over the global south. So the same extraction still continues but now no, you no longer need a, a, a physical uh, occupation or a military occupation or a, a physical or military presence in a country to be able to still subjugate it. Yeah, it's like having the power, isn't it, and the dominance of an empire without an actual empire in that sense, because you've actually yeah. got other levers of control that you can now utilise to, because actually in the sort of around just after, after the Second World War, there was in opposition to the idea of, of colonisation and the idea, and actually the movements for self-determination, independence and freedom were, were really building. And so I think the northern powers found it increasingly difficult to hold on to their colonies uh, against that kind of move against this sort of setup. And so the neo-colonial route um, opened up a whole new way to recreate the dynamics of empire while at the same time giving the veneer that you're letting go of your veneer, of your empire. For War on Want, War on Want was founded by the Labour movement, right, in, in, in opposition then to the war in Korea. And interestingly, you know, its first, it was, <laughs> I, I've got the first ever report it did, written by, uh, John, you'll be interested, by this little non-Labour politician called Harold Wilson, you know, and, and, and War on Want understood, and its slogan, you know, was poverty is political, said we are not going to be able to deal with global poverty and inequality until you end the structures of colonialism and imperialism. And it's such, you know, Warren wants always focused on those, on those root causes and on those drivers, and particularly the levers that exist both in the global north and particularly, obviously, in the UK. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, London and the city of London is the second biggest financial centre in the world. There's a reason why we're the fifth richest economy in the world. There's a reason why most of the biggest multinationals are domiciled here and are, are reflected on the FTSE 100. And, and those often, those corporations and financial institutions, you know, we can trace their, their origins all the way back, right? I mean, we talk about Barclays Bank, we talk about City of London, we talk about Lloyd's, the insurers, all of them had their, of course, their roots first in, in the slave trade and then enriching themselves during colonialism and maintaining that through, as Heidi said, through these systems of, of financial and economic domination. I just want to go back. You've defined the history of colonialism in terms of anti-colonialism in terms of those almost, well, physical struggles to throw off oppressive regimes imposed upon them that then morphs into neocolonialism, which is about economic dominance. 
Let's just drill down into that first phase of anti-colonialism, which was about, in many instances, it was about physical revolt. But it was, it wasn't a just a let's have this burst for freedom. There were ideas developed about the sort of society that people create, wanted to create. Um, if you look at what was happening in East Africa, in particular, the debates around the way in which you would weld socialism together with local cultures, in addition to the same in India, in which um, anti-colonialism developed its own form of struggle, which was on, a, on the basis of non-violence with regard to Gandhi. Within that struggle to throw off the physical oppressor, actually those developments of ideas that have sit subsequently permeated the global society and global politics as well, wasn't there? Give us some uh, examples of that. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, whether we're talking, you know, across the continent of Africa with, you know, people like Kwame Nkrumah or Julius Nyeri, uh, even Jomo Kenyatta, all of these at the time anti-colonial leaders were all developing ideas about how do you uh, revitalize their countries, both urban and rural? How do you have wealth distribution? How do you uh, use the resources of your nation to ensure the basic things that we, we, we now call about, you know, sort of welfare state or social protection, living wages? All of these ideas were there. People were already talking about how do you live sustainably? What is a sustainable development? And they didn't use the word sustainable development, but the ideas of understanding people, the economy and the environment and understanding that the role of the state and the role of your economy was to guarantee that everybody in your could live with dignity and without exploiting other countries. And so there was a real sense of also, of course, of solidarity between countries. And we talk about, you know, sort of pan-Africanism, the idea of challenging this notion of, of the continent being divided, of course, largely in abstract straight lines by the empire, uh, by the imperial powers, and how could you envision a new continent? And the sim similar ideas were, of course, abounding across the Indian subcontinent, where you had revolutionaries such as Bhagat Singh, who will look to both the Bolshevik revolution and were learning lessons in terms of, you know, previous democratic socialist revolutions, were tying that into ideas around agrarian revolution, into, into ideas around land distribution, into ideas around what we would now do today call food sovereignty, but the sovereignty of the people and of the nation over its own resources and ensure that there was abundance. And this idea, you know, of not putting the economy at the central point and not putting profit accumulation at the point as the as the motivating factor for the economy was very much part of all of these anti-colonial struggles. And of course, we could say now that the movements that talk about, you know, in terms of the climate crisis, how do we live sustainably, draw on these concepts of solidarity and cooperation that had been forged through anti-colonial struggles. I don't want to dismiss either the subjugation and the level of imperialist violence that took place as well. When I've been discussing the various anti-colonial struggles that have taken place, I think it comes as a surprise to quite a lot of people just how recent they were and just how 
physically violent the imperial powers were in such a recent period as well. So only now were we really, I think, discovering the, for example, the impact of the British with regard to the Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya and the physical oppression that went on there, effectively the concentration camps and the tortures that took place. In addition to that, it, again, it, the same in France over recent years coming to terms with the French domination and their brutal experience of Algeria and oppression that took there. And it's trying to understand just how recent that was, that the use of physical violence by imperial powers, Britain, France, Belgium, in Africa in particular, how recent that violence mode of domination was and the suffering that took place. And on all these discussions, it's important that we we stress that because it was shocking. The scale of it and the brutality of it was shocking. And that is matched by, I have to say, the courage and determination of those people who were involved in the anti-colonial struggles within the, those, those countries. Interesting enough, the anti-colonial movement in this country was developed in the late 19th century and into the 20th century. And I had the privilege of speaking on a platform with Fenner Brockway, who was mm -hmm. one of the founders of the anti-colonial movement that's developed into now the organization Liberation. What do we know about the anti-colonial support that there was within this country? There's actually historically always been a strong current within progressive politics, left politics, whatever the word you want to use, that has been deeply anti-colonial. You know, often people talk about, for example, slavery and as if the end of slavery was a moment where, you know, the consciousness of uh, the middle classes or the elites decided that it was no longer morally acceptable, you know, and ignored the actual fact that when African and Af African-American as uh, leaders would come to the, to the UK, they would speak to mass meetings of ordinary working class people that, you know, in East London, in the sugar and in, in Tate and Lyle factories that, you know, were um, processing uh, slave and colonial sugar, that there was a boycott of sugar by ordinary people, that hundreds of thousands of ordinary people were signing petitions that get calling for an end to slavery. And, you know, very famously, we know during the uh, during the American Civil War, you know, in the midst of the American Civil War, obviously there was a, a blockade around the, the South and particularly its cotton. And the merchants of Liverpool and Manchester incredibly clubbed together to buy and build a warship in support of the Confederacy to be able to break the, the blockade to allow cotton to come from the slave owning slave plantations to Lancashire and Yorkshire. And in Lancashire and Yorkshire, you had, you know, uh, workers in the in the in the cotton mills who were proclaiming and making proclamations of solidarity with the fight against slavery. And of course, very famously in Rochdale, you had what was then in the midst of what was called a cotton famine, where people were basically left destitute, were moving and walking between town to town in search of work, saying we will refuse to handle cotton that comes from slave plantations because our solidarity is with other people 
fighting repression and, and exploitation. And that, I think, has been historically always true, right? There's always been this strong current and that exists. And it's played out in many, many different ways. And more recently, we of course, it's played out during the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa with British workers refusing to handle South African goods, Liverpool dockers refusing to uh, handle South African produce. We saw it with Chile with the fascist dictatorship, with workers at the Rolls-Royce factories refusing to handle uh, the aircraft that the UK government wanted to send to, to the Pinochet regime. And we see it currently, of course, that these anti-colonial struggles aren't, haven't ended. You know, we can talk about Western Sahara, we can talk about Palestine and other places where these anti-colonial struggles still continue. And there has been a tradition of, of course, people still uh, supporting and showing solidarity. But politically, when we look at the gatherings of anti-colonial thinkers, you know, very famously, both in London and in Manchester, there was always a strong current of also British left thinkers attending and enriching their own ideas about, you know, the fight for justice here in the UK and seeing themselves as being part and parcel, of course, of a global struggle with different dimensions. That anti-colonialism was a necessary part of the emancipation of the working class here in the UK as well. And so this sense of solidarity that existed, I mean, has been profound. I mean, um, and often, of course, erased from history or erased at least from political discourse as if, you know, none of these things has ever, ever happened before that, you know, somehow ordinary people, ordinary working class people in this country uh, have no sense of solidarity with anybody else. But of course, that's palpably been untrue. And at the heart of the Attlee government was the commitment to decolonize. Under economic pressure, it wasn't just alt altruism, there was an economic pressures as well, obviously. But in addition to that, at the heart of the Labour and Trade Union movement was a, was a commitment to ensuring that it, uh, uh, when elected, a Labour government would address the issue of colonies and would address the issue in particular of India. And there was a huge breakthrough that period. I think it did transform, it did transform a lot of people's thinking about the relationship then with the global south. Let's come on to that now. So let's talk about what after this physical suppression took place, and as a result of the struggles to shake off the imperial powers, dominance of individual countries and, and continents, it then morphs into neocolonialism. Let's just talk about how that happened and what the mechanisms were for that and what they are today. And I want to talk about what does the anti-colonial struggle look like today? Heidi, just explain, you've mentioned it earlier, just explain what happened to establish the form of neocolonialism that now exists. So during the period of, um, where, you know, the whole spit of countries got their independence sort of post-war, um, in sort of 1950s, 60s period, the, you know, the Northern powers, the form of colonial powers um, started, I guess, feeling all the economic interests really threatened by these moves. And so what we see in this kind of period is that um, a lot of democratically elected leaders are coming into place in these former colonies. Um, they are saying um, that they're, they're talking about uh, state-led development. They're talking about taking control of their own resources. They're talking about nationalization. Um, and this is hugely threatening to Northern interests. 
Um, and so we see a whole spate of, um, uh, and this is also in the middle of the Cold War as well. And so we're also seeing a whole spate of um, assassinations, coups, plots to take down this generation of new leaders that are coming into place that are wanting to see um, to, to, to shape their own countries and their own economies and their own futures in a way that they um, have always dreamed about during that anti during the physical kind of colonial period um, of direct rule. Um, so, for example, Patrice Lubumba um, was the first democratically elected president of the of independent Congo, and he wanted to create um, you know state led development. He wanted to use the resources of the Congo for the benefits of its people because the Congo had been under uh, incredibly cruel um, oppression um, and um, widespread brutal violence from the Belgian um, empire. So this was their chance to really build a country that was uh, for the benefit of its people. This rhetoric that was coming out of Lumumba's uh, government was a real threat to the US interests to, uh, uh, to the West. And so eventually he was assassinated and uh, instead a reactionary um, leader was put in, in, in place who supported US interests, which then led to the dictator of Mobutu coming uh, coming into place, which lasted right through to 1997. And so a series of these kind of coups where um, leaders that are more aligned to the interests of of the Western powers uh, were put into place. Um, We see this in Iran as well. So the uh, democratic elected leader, Mohammed Mossadegh, wanted to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which is now BP. Um, and so uh, the, the British essentially whipped up anti-government sentiment, but paid demonstrators essentially supported a military coup, which took down Mossadegh uh, and then introduced a, a dictator for the next 26 years. So we see that their, their involvement in these coups taking place uh, and so put, installing puppet leaders for their interests. And then later on, the non-aligned movement developed um, the, the, the talk of tricontinental Tricontinentalism um, about bringing together um, different struggles from co- countries that were, were different countries that were uh, had been colonized, and we see that this um, non-aligned movement w- uh, come together in the in the late 1950s, early 1961, and 19, early 1960s, and the non-aligned movement was essentially coming together of different countries that didn't want to align themselves with either the Soviet bloc or the U- or the US or NATO bloc. Um, and instead wanted to um, pull themselves away and make and make themselves distinct from that. Um, and so they collectively came together to advance a vision of national independence, of sovereignty, of um, security, and actively opposed imperialism, colonialism, neocolonialism, racism, occupation, all those things that had defined that, and, uh, that colonial period. They came to uh, expressly articulate their objection to that through the non-aligned movement. And the non-aligned movement is quite um, important to the to the actual the new international economic order that was a was a, a, a vision setting out a vision and a program for how global power could be redistributed and bringing economic so- sovereignty back to the global south directly opposing neocolonialism and so the G77 the group of 77 um, developing countries um, came together at the UN and passed this resolution which asserted their rights to regulate multinational corporations to reg- um, to nationalize foreign owned assets the right to impose t- trade tariffs to um, cooperate to maintain prices for raw materials and also are, um, putting their demands for development finance and uh, technology transfer with no strings attached. 
And so when the new, so when the former colonial powers saw this, saw these moves happening, saw the ascendancy of the global south, it completely panicked them. And so this is where they started to kind of um, use other tactics, where, for example, creating the whole idea of aid, creating the uh, least developed countries group to, to basically create, to, to divide and conquer, separate out the, the poorest countries within the global south and offer them um, aid and trying to get them to basically settle for charity handouts and distract them from this agenda of actually addressing the power dynamics in the global economy, because that was a much more dangerous agenda. Uh, and so they created the idea around aid um, uh, and the whole aid industry arose around that as a distraction from this demands um, for um, economic power, economic rights, economic sovereignty. And so then, when, then we come into the period where debt becomes a real weapon um, of the neocolonial project, um, because in uh, using 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 debt, using loans from multilateral institutions like the IMF and World Bank, they attached conditions to these loans, which essentially meant that countries, so global South countries, had to um, essentially change the whole structure of their economies. They had to forcibly introduce uh, privatization deregulation, liberalization, austerity, basically uh, turning these global south economies into uh, sources, uh, sources of extraction for the global north to enrich the global north while impoverishing people who are living in these countries. And so the neo-colonial project became incredibly powerful. Um, and so we saw what people often call lost decades of development because of these structural adjustment policies, which enforced um, really extreme measures uh, onto countries that simply did not benefit from any of these um, measures. What time period are we talking about here, Heidi? So the, the non-aligned movement sort of came together in the early 1960s. The new international economic order was in the 1970s. The debt crisis happened in the 1980s. And then the 80, 1980s, 1990s, we're seeing the structural adjustment policies being enforced onto the global south. Um, and so that whole lost decade leading up to sort of the, the, the 2000s. So we are talking relatively recently, as you were saying before, John, about the violence, the brutality and the violence of the of the colonial of colonialism and imperialism was actually relatively recently. And so this uh, this time period of the developments around the neocolonialism also relatively recent, but also continue to this day. And we, we continue to see even even in the, um, the, the IMF and World Bank, the most recent loans they've given during the COVID period. A recent report showed that most of the about 80% of these loans actually um, still had conditions attached to them, which were forcing countries during the pandemic period to continue to reduce social spending, uh, spending on social protection, on, 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 on salaries for healthcare workers and so on. So we see this agenda carry on through to, to, to the present day. Just map out the institutions for us that we're talking about here. We're talking so, about the role of the UN, IMF, etc. Just map those out for us and their different roles. Yeah, so so we have the UN, which was set up um, after awards as a way to, and where each country is a member state. Most most of the countries of the world are now member states of the United Nations. But the United Nations is uh, the the power of the United Nations heavily sits with the Security Council, and the Security Council uh, it is a smaller collaboration of, of the former colonial powers that continue to hold nuclear weapons, and they are the ones that make all the decisions essentially. And the wider UN can make, um, you know, they can have resolutions of the General Assembly, a bit like the new international economic order, but the resolutions are really just sort of declarations or statements that unfortunately they don't have the force of law behind them. 
And then we have the World Bank, the World Bank and the IMS, which were set up after the Second World War, um, essentially to try to bring stability into the global economy, you know, after the, 19, uh, the, the crash of the 1930s and the recession leading up to the Second World War. And the World Bank was set up essentially to actually lend money for development projects, to lend money for things like, you know, dams and infrastructure. And the IMF was set up as a way to help smooth out um, economic um, slumps or to smooth out balance of payments problems as a way to, to again to ensure that one crisis in one part of the world doesn't spread to globally but these two institutions the world bank and the imf were powerfully redesigned reconfigured to be used uh, to give out loans to help countries that were in a debt crisis which were, which were created um, by a global economy where the rules have been stacked against the global south and so we have a situation where countries in the global south are, are structurally predisposed to high levels of harmful debt um, and so all it takes is an external shock and these countries are then plunged into a debt crisis then these two institutions have then been elevated into this role where they get to lend money and attach conditions on these loans. Um, and through these conditions, they're able, they, they've been able to shape the economies of the global south over 20 to 30 years. But in a way that is um, to the benefit of the former colonial powers and rich countries today. And they're done in such a, I mean, even a, you know, when we look at the, for example, the World Bank, it's written into the World Bank that uh, the leading positions of the World Bank have to be held by somebody from the United States and, and, and somebody from Europe. The IMF is structured in a way that gives the greater proportion of votes to the richer economies of the global north. So both of them ultimately have veto power, as they have veto power in the Security Council. So the idea, and I think for lots of anti-colonial movements who thoughts throw off the shackles of, of empire and we will be autonomous nations in a, in a new global order and our voice will be heard, suddenly find all of these institutions were already stacked against them and were maintaining the same model of extraction and exploitation. And as Heidi said, you know, and you were saying, John, this is not an historical, just a, you know, something that happened hundreds of years ago or even decades ago. We saw that just earlier this year with what happened in Sri Lanka, you know, where uh, as a country, that debt burden and the shocks that had happened to the global economy meant that the Sri Lankan government defaulted and was no longer able to pay its debt. And this is a combination, of course, of course, of inequality, climate impacts, all of these things. And a very, very powerful movement took to the streets incredible people power of trade unionists and environmentalists and farmers organizations saying we want to get rid of this government uh, and this economic system and despite all of that resistance of the of the overwhelming view of the people of Sri Lanka that they wanted a, a very different economic approach the IMF's loan to Sri Lanka had exactly those same conditionalities yeah. attached which said this loan requires you to cut your public expenditure, privatize what's left of your economy that is under that is still under a state control. You have to weaken labor laws because these are a barrier to you being competitive, and you have to weaken your weaken your environmental laws, which we also see as a barrier to be competitive. And you know, if we look at the global economy and why many people talk about this as being about neocolonialism is if colonialism was structured in a way to take the commodities and the resources of the global south 
to the global north and to add value to them, to make surplus value and therefore profit accumulation. Neocolonialism did exactly that. And it turned the economies of the global south, which should have been the economic sovereignty, should have been how does our economy meet the needs of our people became, how does our economy export our commodities to the global north? And often these commodities were the things that nobody needed in the global south in those countries. So you have these weird situations where you have countries in the global south at the same time facing huge issues of hunger and famine, yet continuing to export commodities because everything that global south countries need requires them to have to buy with the dollar. And the only way they can get the dollar is if they are selling their commodities on the global market. But it would be all right. I mean, it wouldn't be all right, but it would be even some way towards it if those countries had even control of their, of their commodities. What we find in terms of neocolonialism is while nominally these countries have economic sovereignty, the commodities and the value of those commodities is still being held largely by the global north. I mean, chocolate is a great example, right? Cocoa beans, two countries in Africa produce something like about 90% of, of, of all the cocoa, uh, Sierra Leone and Cote d'Ivoire, I think it is. And they only get about 6% of the actual value of the chocolate. The majority of the chocolate value of chocolate is held by Europe. Wait a minute. So you're producing the cocoa beans, but actually the surplus value and the profit is held by Europe because it's manufacturing the chocolate. And these are, have been, you know, it's not because those countries don't want to produce their own and, and, and manufacturing and build their own manufacturing. These structural adjustment programs have prevented countries being able to do the very same things that the Europeans and the Americans had basically done, which is how do you grow your economy? You protect it in the first instance, you invest in it, and you allow it to become stronger, and then it becomes competitive. And what they said was, no, the very tools we use, we're not going to make available to you now. So basically, it creates this unequal relationship between the global economies of the North and global economies of the South, which is continually maintained. I want to come on to how, how do anti-colonialists have an effect now? How do campaigners now have an effect? Before I do that, can I just say alongside the mapping of the global institutions, Heidi, and I said, I want also to place these sort of shadow financial system, if you like. And I give the, this small example. I think it was three years ago, I met a group of women coming from Mozambique, and they were just experiencing the, re the first real heavy effects of climate change. And their problem was their government was virtually bankrupt. And it was virtually bankrupt because they discovered that their politicians, without the approval of parliament, their politicians had gone off to the city of London, secured a huge loan, i.e. huge debt, that they now couldn't even service on the resources that they had. And that was without any conduit via the IMF or anything like that. That was a direct relationship with the city of London itself. And it, for me, it, was, it, it wasn't a shock, but it was angry-making because you saw that here these were desperate people now, sold out by some of their own politicians, but those politicians also were under the allure and pressure from the financial institutions located just two miles down the road from where we were meeting them in the centre of London. It's extraordinary that the way that sort of banking system has operated almost uncontrolled because that debt wasn't even 
publicly registered. That was one of the pieces of legislation we were hoping to introduce if we went into government. Let me just come back to you. The debt is the big issue for many countries now. What are campaigners doing about that now? Just what should people be doing about that now? Yeah, the debt crisis really um, has been building since 2010 um, and has really kind of exploded since the pandemic. And then now with the um, in rising food and fuel prices and as well as rising in, in interest rates in the West and um, the, dollar, the, the, the value of the dollar is also strengthening in the global markets. So and that means that even if countries don't borrow anymore, actually their debts are just going up um, in, in significantly. And 54 countries are now in a debt crisis. So um, the things that people can do today around the debt crisis. So we are we've been um, campaigning on Zambia's debt in particular and trying to offer solidarity to Zambian campaigners because they uh, went into default during the pandemic. They went to the G20 set of the scheme for countries to get their debts cancelled. But the scheme has only had so far had three countries apply, Zambia, Chad and Ethiopia. And none of those three countries have had any debts cancelled so far. And one of the biggest bondholders um, of holders of uh, Zambian debt is BlackRock. So we've been campaigning against BlackRock to get them to come to the negotiating table and to, to negotiate significant amounts of debt cancellation to enable um, Zambia to be able to direct its resources to uh, healthcare and education and public services, tackling the climate crisis and so on. Um, so we do encourage people to, to do encourage people to join our campaign in terms of offering solidarity to Zambia at the moment. But also, we are also fighting a wider, a sort of more a longer term campaign around getting some legislation in place because of colonialism. Um, almost all contracts, debt contracts in the world are written either in English law or New York law. Um, so this is because of, you know, people wanted to have their debt contracts enforced and so needed a stable law to kind of invert inverted commas to, to, to rely on. So, so what that means is that that the um, if we could actually introduce legislation in the UK, um, and we're also working um, in solidarity with and collaboration with New York campaigners to get a similar law in the New York um, Assembly. If we can get a new legislation in place, which would actually bind up and, and compel private, credit, private creditors, private lenders like BlackRock, like HSBC, UBS, you know, all the, sort of the, the, the big banks and hedge funds. Um, if we could get them to compel them to come to the table to actually negotiate debt cancellation, because... Unfortunately, uh, unlike individuals and, corpor and corporations, when, when an individual or a company gets into trouble, you can go through a bankruptcy process where eventually your debts get threatened off. If you're a country and you um, get into a debt crisis and you can no longer afford to pay your debts, there is no process. Private lenders can continue to press you um, for debt repayments no matter what, even if it means sacrificing your public services, if it means even if it means sacrificing your ability to tackle the climate crisis, even if it means that you just divert every resource to paying debt and to nothing else in your economy. Um, and so this can't be right. And so that's why we need to find a way to compel private lenders to stop their, their, their pressure on countries, because actually if countries don't pay up, eventually they can actually take them to court. Through through the UK courts, actually, if the if the debts are written in the UK in the UK, in English law, they can take they come to UK courts and they can press countries for full payment um, and completely uh, exploit um, and extract um, from them at a time when they are when they actually need to have debt cancellation. So we're where we are um, trying to build that movement for around um, legislation. And in particular, we're hoping that the opposition parties in the UK can can come on board with that. Um, because we think that that will make a really big difference because it would actually give some teeth to reining in um, big banks and, and hedge funds who are uh, profiteering off the misery um, of global South countries in that situation. Well, where's the UK government on this at the moment? 
Uh, interestingly enough, so Andrew Mitchell, who was the development minister, the current development minister, actually was um, in an international development committee a couple of weeks ago. And he actually, and a question was asked of him about this legislation idea. And he said that he would look into it. And we were, we were quite surprised because we thought that this government would be ideologically inherently opposed to any legislation that was around constraining the activities of the City of London um, and the financial sector. But I think there's a real case because uh, there was a uh, actually the last Labour government actually just before uh, at the end of the last Labour government actually introduced a, uh, a vulture, you know, vulture funds law. It, it was a, a legislation that was put into place to, to ensure that creditors do um, take on to, to do engaging debt cancellation based on um, the historic agreement around debt cancellation that was one in the 1990s, early 2000s. But that was a law that was only applied to past debts and doesn't apply to debts from um, I think it was 2014 onwards didn't apply to, to new debts that were taken on. So that's why we need a new legislation. We need a part two of that legislation almost. Andrew Mitchell may be uh, almost isolated within that regime at the moment, but nevertheless, it's a door open it's an interesting uh, that we've yeah, got to try and push, push wider, obviously. Yeah. Where do people go from here in terms of the anti-colonial struggle? Obviously, the, the debt struggle is, is is an integral part of that. We need to absolutely cancel uh, global uh, South debt. But, you know, when we think about, you know, those levers of the economic system, I think, first of all, it's just recognising, I think it's important for us to ensure in our political discourse, we recognise the realities that the global South is not poor because that's a natural condition it has been deliberately underdeveloped or not allowed to develop. And that's processes continue. There was a, a study recently which tried to evaluate the scale of the materials, the land use, the labor exploitation, and the inequalities between the global north and the global south countries. And it, 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 incredibly, they calculated that, you know, the global north currently still uses about 12 billion tons of raw materials from the global south, about 822 million hectares of land for food production to the global north, about 392 billion hours of exploited labour, and which they then calculated would be about $10.8 trillion each and every year is taken from the global south to the global north, which is enough to end extreme poverty or end poverty about 70 times over. And if you take them in a block and so that we think about them in currently, that if you just took between 1990 and 2015, we're saying that the global south has been drained of about $242 trillion. When we put it into perspective about the, the fact that rich countries are still not meeting their promise in climate finance of $100 billion, saying our coffers are empty, and yet $242 trillion is flowed the other way, it shows that part of our struggle has got to be refocusing on these powerful global institutions on debt, absolutely, but also on trade, because trade is the rules by which this global economy is enforced and the power of the global north is enforced. And the trade policies that the UK is currently, for example, signing, have this incredible clauses within, the, within them, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Court, which basically privileges corporations and multinationals to be able to sue though governments uh, overwhelmingly of the global south, but actually also now being used against governments in the global north, if those governments ever took decisions which threatened their profit or the 
assumed profit of those corporations. So if they took a policy, for example, around food sovereignty or agroecology or or ending fossil fuels, those those companies could take those countries to the secret corporate courts and sue them for these actions. So trade, I think, is a really, really essential part. Obviously, the third part of that, and, and John, I know you did a huge amount of work around this, uh, thinking about the UK's role in the global economy and what you know, real solidarity and action would need to be would need to, to be. The third element, the simplest element, of course, is also about taxation. Now we know that global taxation, particularly of multinationals, is one way in which you know those countries of the global south would have the tax revenues to be able to invest in supporting their own citizens. And we see currently, you know, the UN talking about a global tax system for corporations so low that it actually would be largely meaningless for many countries in the global south. Tax campaigners have been talking about at least, you know, a double that in terms of of a tax rate. So companies paying their fair tax in the countries that they do business is really, really important. And of course, it's also relevant to us here in the UK, because we can see with both Amazon, Google, and other these big high-tech companies that they are also not paying the tax in these in these countries and of course rely on the infrastructure and, and, and public investment and public services to maintain their businesses. So those three, I think, are critical parts of the fight for economic justice to be part and parcel of you know this broader moment that we're living in now which is which does talk about as the bandung uh, conference talked about what should be the new economic order what is the new international system that is needed in the face of these multiple crises that the world uh, says so there is an opportunity for a new anti-imperialism to be developed for this moment draws on those fights historically but makes them relevant to this moment of connecting the climate and inequality and the uh, and the fight against you know unsustainable growth and, and resource extraction of the global south can i thank you both the, the conversation has been all encompassing we've covered about four or five centuries in the space of 45 minutes as well as some of the i think some of the key issues that are facing the next generation of um, people who want to see a a world in which we can live together in in peace harmony but also to ensure that we no longer have have billions living in poverty and at the same time we can come together to tackle climate change thank you both it's been a really interesting discussion and i'm sure uh, once we get this podcast out there there'll be coming people will be coming back with lots more questions so um, i warn you i'll be inviting you both back at some stage if that's okay thank you very much Always a pleasure, John. Always a pleasure. Thank you, John. That was great.